Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Corinthians 13, 1 through 10, and we are in the home stretch. Um, Lord willing, next week we'll do a recap and hit uh, those final verses, looks like 11 through 14, and we should uh, draw to a conclusion, 2 Corinthians. I have to tell you, this has been one of the hardest books uh, to preach through, because there's some deep theological truths, and then there's a lot of very personal intimate stuff that happened back in the day that we have to work through in order to gather principles, but uh, it's rewarding. And my hope is that uh, on the next teaching of it, if you didn't find it so good, the next teaching will be better. And if you did find it good, then hopefully the next teaching will still be better. And even if you disconnect from the teaching altogether, I hope that the next time you read through Second Corinthians, you find more treasures and more joy out of it. That's my hope. Because um, we don't just get our understanding of who God is from preachers, we get it from God's Word. Do you understand what I mean by that? That uh, because we're Protestant Christians, we don't believe in going through another intermediary besides Christ. We learn, we gather, but each of us has to go to the Word and be responsible. And so I want to encourage you in that, that uh, you read this, and if you found this to be a tangled mess and you're more confused than ever, uh, just keep reading it, and I think God will bring clarity. So, uh, what is First Corinthians thirteen about? What is it? Love, right? <laughs> Got to say it in a certain way. Um, even people who don't believe in Jesus, they have First Corinthians thirteen read at their weddings. I think that's interesting, don't you? What do you think Second Corinthians thirteen is about? Okay, warning. Good, good. I'm going to suggest to you this is about love, too, okay? It's about love, too. It's about an apostle who loves the church that he's founded, the church that even though he's, he calls himself their father, that even still uh, he's found himself in opposition against them. Maybe it's better to say they've been in opposition against Paul. I don't think Paul's ever been against them. I think they've been against Paul, but he loves them, and he... He wants to see them succeed, and um, even, if it, even if that's at his expense, he's willing to both expend himself, all that he has, and himself completely for their well-being, and he's said all along, it doesn't matter, you know, if I look good, the real important point is that God blesses you and that you grow, and he feels that even as he exerts his authority, he's a little ashamed of doing so that he does it for their well-being. He, he feels that he's been given authority by God, not for, uh, not for tearing them down, but for building them up. Uh, you know, there's nothing meaner than a self-appointed Pentecostal uh, spiritual prophet. You know, a person who thinks that under their authority, everybody needs to listen to them and, and hear what they have to say. Uh, and and sometimes there's no love in it. I don't know if you've met people like this, but some people uh, who seem to be on the extreme of the spiritual side can sometimes be really mean too. 
And Paul's not like that. Paul loves, and yet uh, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he cares about what's happening to this church. So he's getting ready to visit uh, the Corinthians for a third time. And uh, the first time he establishes the church, that's found in Acts 18. If you want to go through that, you can. You can find him uh, there preaching the gospel. He's there for um, 18 months preaching the gospel. And then he wrote a couple of letters uh, he wrote a letter that we don't have, and we know that because of a reference to a, a former letter in 1 Corinthians that's just kind of in a passing comment. He talks about having written to them before. Uh, so we don't have that, and I'm going to suggest to you strongly in the providence of God, we don't have that for whatever reason, and we don't need to search for it. And if somebody pops up with a letter from uh, Paul to the Corinthians that we don't have, be wary, Right? So we don't have that letter, and I'm going to suggest to you that we're not supposed to. But we do have the first, uh, the letter we call 1 Corinthians, and he writes that letter. Uh, you know, after he wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, then he visits them, and it didn't turn out well. He left after a very brief visit, and now he's uh, getting ready to go again. I need to clear up a, a, a detail, which isn't a theological significance, but of chronological significance. I've been saying that in his painful visit, he was there three months. That's actually the visit that he's getting ready to make. So we don't know how long he was there in this intermediate time. I'm going to show you a chart here, and hopefully this doesn't confuse us more. Okay, so here's kind of a timeline that has some of the Apostle Paul's life. And if you zoom in here to the 50s, uh, somewhere around 50, 51, he goes to Corinth for the first time, Acts 18, okay? And then after being there for a year and a half, he leaves there and he travels to, to Ephesus and he stays in Ephesus. So you have that stay in Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus, he writes the Corinthian correspondence, okay? The first letter to the Corinthians that we, whichever one we don't have, and then also 1 Corinthians that we do have. And then while he's staying in Ephesus and after having written that first letter, he jaunts over across the uh, Aegean Sea, and he goes to Corinth, and he pays uh, what he calls uh, in Second Corinthians 2 a painful visit. He makes a painful visit there. We don't have that in the book of Acts. It doesn't tell us about that painful visit. It just tells us that he was in Ephesus, and the, the word of God was spreading throughout Asia. But he takes a little trip over there, and then he comes back, he leaves early because he doesn't want to press in on the Corinthian church and, and make the painful visit kind of expounded. I think Paul's afraid that somehow he's going to make things worse by staying. And so he leaves and creates some distance. And then he writes another letter that we don't have. So letter A, 1 Corinthians. Letter B, 2 Corinthians. Okay. So then uh, he writes this painful letter that we don't have, and it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. We know it's not 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians is not a painful letter. It's not a sorrowful letter. It's a joyous letter. It's a letter full of power and instruction, and I think Paul seems hopeful that they're going to start getting it right. But they seem to not do that. And so then he talks in 2 Corinthians. This is the Corinthians uh, correspondence here. He talks in 2 Corinthians about another visit he's getting ready to make. And we're coming down the home stretch. And he's, he's talking about here in verse 1 of chapter 13, this will be my third visit to you. Now, if you read in the book of Acts, there's only, only talks about two visits. And that's because one of them's not mentioned there. So 
Uh, let me pause and just say this. Do you know that the Bible doesn't tell us everything that happened? It tells us the most significant things that happened. Okay, so for whatever reason, it's not mentioned there. Luke didn't see it as important uh, for the sake of the story, or Luke, by the power of the Holy Spirit, didn't see it as important to mention that. He dwells on some of the more powerful things, the more, uh, um, some of the more dramatic things, whether bad or good. And so for whatever reason, he doesn't mention that. And then he's going to make this visit to Corinth, and then that's going to get cut a little bit short, not because of a bad visit, but he's getting ready to head to Jerusalem, and we know from there he goes on his way to Caesar. Okay? Uh, and so that kind of gets us in the place that we need to be here as, as he makes that uh, last visit to Corinth after three months. He leaves there, and he heads back around. He visits the Ephesian elders where he has that tearful goodbye. Do you remember? I'm going to probably not see some of you again. And uh, there will rise up among you wolves that uh, will not spare the flock. And he says, I'm, I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem to suffer, but also to die for the sake of the gospel. And I count not my life dear to, to myself, but I'm ready not only to suffer, but to die for the sake of Christ. He's ready to give it all away. And then he heads to Jerusalem, and we know, we know what kind of follows in that sequence. So all that that change that I mentioned means is, is uh, that the visit in Corinth was not three months um, that's the visit that he's anticipating now. And so let's look at our text here, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Don't jump over to 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealings with you. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not put, you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. So as I said, he's just going to give some final instructions after this and tell everybody, hey, kiss each other and goodbye. That's uh, the close of the letter there. I'd like to read my paraphrase, and I'm going to say that again. This is my paraphrase. This is not the Bible. This is my paraphrase and understanding of this. You get a little bit of that anytime, anytime somebody teaches. They're, they're having to filter through and understand the scriptures. But he says it this way. I think he's saying this. I'm visiting you for the third time. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
My first witness was the warning I gave when I was with you last time. This is my second warning while I'm away. The next time I come, uh, it will not be pretty for those who are still living sinfully or for others. Since you're demanding proof that Christ speaks through me, you'll see. Christ is not a weakling in dealing with you. No, he's powerful among you, yet he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. We too are weak, even in him. But God's power will be present in how we deal with you. You should, be, you should all be honest with yourselves about your standing in the faith. Ask the hard questions. Unless you fail the test, Jesus is in you. Surely you will come to the realization that we are legitimate. It is our request of God that you not do wrong in any way, not because we are concerned with people with what people think we are, whether we're legitimate or not. That's secondary to you doing what's right, even if we don't pass the test in your eyes. Though we have no power against the truth, we can only promote the truth. We are happy to be weak if you are strong, and we pray that you would be brought back to everything God wants you to be. I'm writing uh, for this very reason while I'm away. I don't want to have to use authority severely when I get there, authority that was given by the Lord to increase your potential, not to take from it. And so uh, Paul's dealing with some matters of discipline. What are those matters of discipline? Does anybody remember? Um. You could probably go back to the last chapter and take a peek, and you'll, you'll get some of those things. But it's really throughout the whole book. Uh, what are some of the Corinthian problems? Let's just go through from memory and talk about that for a moment. Sexual immorality. What's the prime example of that in Corinth? A guy living with a stepmom in a, an immoral relationship, and they're kind of proud of it. Paul says you shouldn't be proud of that. You should have kicked the guy to the curb in the name of Jesus. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that he might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Instead, you're proud and you boast, and you shouldn't be doing that. Okay? What's the other thing? Boasting? Okay? There's some kind of pride that's there. And what are the, What's the manifestation of that pride? Like, Pride is a, a quality that's usually internal, but it has some visible symptoms. What are they? What's that? I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Arrogance. Okay. So arrogance. All right. What else? How about uh, partisan behavior? Like, this is my group, and we're, the, we're better than your group, okay? Some are saying, I'm of Paul, and some are saying, I'm of Apollos, and some of Cephas, and some of saying they're of Jesus, and we've got our spiritual cliques within the church, and our, our clique's better than your clique, and we're more spiritual than you, okay? How about this? The use of spiritual gifts for self-promotion rather than for serving one another. Isn't that a good example of there's a good uh, showing that there's a problem of pride. Okay, anything else you can think of there? Yeah. Self-promotion. And I think there's a lot in uh, the Corinthian culture that lends itself to that. So people in that day saw nothing wrong with advertising how great they were. That was part of the thing. As long as you backed it up, they didn't want to see somebody who was 
deceitful in that. But if you could back it up, you should talk about yourself. Glory, you know, give glory to yourself. Miss Evelyn, did you have something to add? Picking on the preacher, yeah. That's true. That is a good example of pride. (laughs) I'm jokingly making more of that. Everybody caught that right? Okay. Um, Can you think of anything else? I think one one example uh, while you're thinking is there seems to be a problem in the first Corinthian letter where there are people who are in a higher social class that they're separating themselves when it comes time to take the Lord's Supper. Like they go ahead and eat and then they leave out people who are in a lower social class like you guys can eat later. And Paul says, that's not the Lord's Supper. You should just eat at home if you're going to do that. And so there's problems like that. And, And here... I think one of the main problems that Paul is dealing with in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he's, he's dealing with uh, issues. In 2 Corinthians, he's going after the root of it. And the root of it is uh, found in a worldly way of determining what's important. So they're, they've got worldly priorities, and those come out in how they're following after these false teachers. These false teachers fit the world's paradigm of what a good leader is, self-promoting. Uh, assertive, and, and there's nothing really wrong with being assertive, but assertive in a way that is not servant-like, okay, and uh, uh, maybe boisterous and loud and forceful and, you know, you guys don't get it right, I'm going to come and lay the law down. Paul's going to do that, but this is, I hope you understand, this is a last resort for him, that he wants to do all of this gently, and we see that in this uh, in this chapter, Okay, so he says, this is my, my third visit to you. And so in verses 1 through 4 here, uh, he's going to talk about um, how he's getting ready to come, and those who are dealing with these things need to be ready. Uh, notice some specific things from chapter 12 that are indicators there's a problem in the Corinthian church still. Um, he says uh, in verse 20, I'm afraid that when I come to you, this is chapter 12, not 13. Uh, I'm afraid that when I come to you, I may not find you as I want you to be. Now, you know, Paul isn't just saying, this is the way I like it. He's saying, this is the way I think that God's people ought to live. Uh, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. What does he mean by that? (laughs) You might think I'm a pushover. You might think I'm a mouse, but... Uh, you keep pushing your luck, buddy. That's that's kind of what he's saying to this church. I fear that there may be some problems among you. What are they? Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. What do we call those last time? Does anybody remember what kind of sins those are? What does it take to sin like this? Somebody else. They're social sins. So he's saying these problems are uh, social sins. And I would suggest to you sins are always relational in one way or another. It's either how you relate to yourself, how you relate to God, or how you relate to other people. That's sin. Sin happens in that context. So this is, these are, but this is particularly social sins. You can't have discord without somebody else. I mean, I know that some of us, we can get in conflict and argue with ourselves, but... But this kind of discord that it's talking about is 
the kind that jockeys for position. It's the kind of uh, self-aggrandizement that shamelessly and unscrupulously seeks self-advancement and doesn't mind stepping on others to get there. Okay, so that's the discord that's talked about there. So these are social sins, and and so you re- you realize too that chapter breaks weren't in Paul's original letter. So he when we come into chapter thirteen, we're really coming right out of chapter twelve. There's no break in the reader's mind. In fact, we're taking this chapter by chapter. When Paul uh, first wrote this letter and sent it with Titus or whoever he s- sends this with, uh, he may he may send it on ahead of himself, which I think he does. Um, they're going to read it in one of their church services from start to finish. No breaks. They're not even going to hear what verse number it is. They're not going to know what chapter it is because those don't exist. It's just one letter. And if you break this up, it takes about 45 minutes to read. I thought it'd be cool, uh, but I don't think you would think it was so cool to just read straight through this in one service. But that's exactly what would have happened with all of the letters that were written is that who, when they got the letter, whoever was the, the messenger or the carrier of the letter, they would have gotten up and they would have read this. This is from Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, and they would have read from start to finish. And everybody would have heard this message. And they would have known some of the people that it was being talked about in here. Like they might have sat next to somebody in the pew, if they had such a thing, who was guilty of the discords and the strife. Okay, What else are... Uh, are there, uh, what, what other sins are mentioned down here? And I'm thinking of, oh, verse 21, chapter 12, verse 21. Okay, you've not repented, those who have not repented of impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery, okay, in which they have indulged. What kind of sins are these? Okay, sins against your own body, truly. But just following the alliteration, they're sexual sins. That's what these have have to do with. They're social sins. They're sexual sins, which are also a degree of social sin. Paul's saying, I'm getting ready to come the third time. These things are still a problem. I mean, goodness, guys, I've written three letters up to this point, and this is the fourth. I don't know what was in those other two we, we don't have. But these are problems, and how come they haven't been dealt with? And so he's getting ready to come, and he's giving them some warning. He's giving them some warning and some fairness that they might deal with it. Okay, do you know that, that God sends us messages so that we can deal with it? And that's what he's doing here is he's getting ready to, he's warning them. He's getting ready to come. So let's look at the... Look at verse 1 here. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, and now I repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Okay, what is this, uh, what is this verse 1 talking about? Every matter or every word, your translation might have every word, must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What's that talking about? What's that? Okay. 
And what did you guys say back there? Prophecy, okay. Prophecy needs to be established by two or three witnesses. Okay, Some, anybody else? It's, uh, this goes back to the Mosaic Law, and this, is, this has to do with uh, court proceedings. Okay? Um, I found this to be kind of interesting. David Garland, in his commentary, says this, that the Greeks in the Roman law, they didn't disallow uh, the legitimacy of one witness. Another, that's kind of a double negative way of saying it. But what he's saying is that in Greek and Roman law, you could have just one witness, and you could convict somebody on the basis of that. But uh, biblical law required that you have two or three witnesses in order to establish a fact. And the assumption behind the biblical law is that it's better for, this is Garland's words, it's better for someone who is guilty to go unpunished because of lack of requisite number of witnesses than to harm an innocent person's reputation with reckless charges. We have a principle like that in the United States. What's, it, what's the principle? Innocent until proven guilty, okay? So we don't presume guilt, although I don't think people practice that anymore. I think we already make up our mind in the public opinion uh, before the conviction's been stated, and we've gone a long way from uh, this kind of principle. But biblical law can make allowance for that kind of thing because in God's mind, and, and it should be in the mind informed by the Bible, Nobody gets away with wrongdoing. So if one person, for example, in the law goes free who is guilty because there's not enough number of witnesses, God still stands as a witness in heaven, and they will stand before him on the day of judgment. You understand that, right? Nobody gets away with sin ever. It either gets placed upon Jesus or the person bears their sin themselves before Almighty God. So that's why... Even, you know, Greek and Roman law, they wouldn't do that. But Hebrew law requires two or three witnesses. Anybody uh, think of a moment? Maybe this isn't a good example at this time, but can anybody think of a time when that was abused? There's a couple instances that stand out in my mind. Okay, with Jesus, they brought false witnesses that said that he told he was going to tear down the temple and build it in three days, things like that. Anybody else? Old Testament? Naboth, remember Naboth's vineyard? And how Ahab said, I like your vineyard. Will you sell it to me? And it's like, can't. It's my ancestral inheritance. I can't sell it. And so uh, Ahab leaves it to Je- Ahab lays on his bed and pouts like a, like a baby. And Jezebel comes in and says, what, What's going on? And he said, I, I want Naboth's vineyard and I can't get it. And Jezebel says, You're the king. You can't handle this. Leave it to me. And she goes and scrounges up a couple uh, witnesses to witness against Naboth, and they use this law against him. They actually violate the law of God because the law of God was that whatever punishment, if you bore false witness, you're worthy of death, especially they had a principle, too, that whatever the judgment would be on the person that you're trying to convict, that judgment would fall on you if you bore false witness against them. So they didn't get away with it. Nabus, uh, in fact, Elijah comes and says, hey, dude, we know what's going on, and, and brings attention to that. So, but, but that's the principle that's here. And so Paul is giving them an issue of fairness. And um, 
couple different translations on this verse. King James says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Word here is uh, uh, kind of a figuratively used of matter or fact. ESV, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. NLT, the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Every charge must be substantiated by two or three witnesses. And this comes from Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness is not uh, enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then there's this, Matthew 18.15-17, if... Your brother sins against you, go and tell them. And if they won't listen, bring somebody with you. And if they still won't listen, bring it before the church. And if they still don't listen, then treat them like an infidel or a tax collector. And so this is a two or three witness kind of principle being applied in a little bit different way. Okay, So here Paul is using this uh, of whatever facts that he knows about them. He's giving them, he's giving them space to repent. That's what he's doing. He's giving them some space to repent by saying, look, a born witness. Now, he's using these the witness in kind of a, a figurative way. Uh, Paul quotes that scripture that's used in the courtroom. And then um, these, these witnesses establish the facts of what's true. Um, so if you, for example, wanted to convict somebody of uh, being a murderer, you had to have two or three people. And said, yeah, we saw that that guy murdered that guy, and then they're a murderer. If somebody was accused of stealing, yes, I saw. Another person, yes, I saw that he stole that, therefore he's a thief, and he's guilty of whatever punishment was there. And so when Paul uh, brings up this matter of two or three witnesses, there's a couple things that he could mean, and I'm going to suggest, I'm going to mention both of them, you can decide, but but I have a feeling that it's the one and not the other. And one thing that he may be saying here is every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses is I'm coming, and when I get there, we're going to do court, and we're going to find out what's going on here. And the witnesses are going to come in, and if you're guilty, then we will, we're going to discipline you. Okay? He might mean that. And uh, I like that because it's real simple and practical. Okay? But what I think is really happening here is that he's using this in a figurative way, and it kind of follows the context of it. Follow with me, if you will. Uh, so on these various occasions, they've been warned. Okay, So he became aware of this behavior, and then he addressed it, it says, on his second visit. Notice verse 2, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. That's one. Okay, And then he says this, uh, so the first, vi- or the first witness against them was the second visit. And then the second witness against them is this letter. Okay, so notice what it says. I now repeat it while absent. Witness two. Okay, so he's using this in a figurative way. On my return, I will not spare you. Third witness. When I get there, if this matter hasn't been resolved, that's the third witness against you. Third strike, you're out, buddy. Whoever this is. I don't think Paul is dealing with the whole church I think Paul's dealing with a select group of people within the church that are continuing to live by these sinful behaviors. And he's going to call them out, and he's going to address what those things are. And so I think he's seeing uh, these warnings as witness against them. And here's what I, I think he intends. If you read the whole context of these last verses, is that he's giving them fair warning so that he doesn't have to do this. Not because he's afraid to, 
but because he would rather warn them and let them deal with God and get it right than have to come there and do some kind of harsh discipline. Because that's not what Paul's after. He's not after trying to tear them down. He's after trying to build them up. And so he puts the warning out there and says, you guys, take care of your business or somebody else will have to. And that's really the principle of Christian maturity is take care of your business or somebody else will have to. Okay, so second uh, verse says, I've already given you that warning and then a second time, and now I repeat it while absent and on my return, I'll not spare. Spare here means to to cause someone not to be troubled, to uh, save or relieve from an experience or action, or to save from loss or discomfort. Uh, it's going to get uncomfortable if I have to come and deal with this. Okay. So he says, on my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier. Okay, these uh, and remember, the sinned earlier is the the, sen- the the verb tense is the kind in which they send before, but the attitudes and actions continue to carry on into the present. It's not that they just sin in the past. Because remember the difference between repentance and confession. Repentance, if they truly repented, they've stopped doing it. Okay, But if they haven't repented, they're still doing it. So he's not, he's not worried about digging up old sins that have not been publicly confessed. That's not what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do here is deal with sin, sinful actions that have started in the past that continue to this day. And he wants to deal with that. And so he says, those who have sinned earlier, and that's the tense of sinned earlier. It's kind of in a perfect tense there. And any of the others. So I don't know what Paul means by this. If he has the um, false apostles in mind, or if any of the others just leaves it open. If any of you other guys are up to shenanigans... You could get caught in this too. That might be it. I don't know. Decide for yourself. But uh, is he going to set up a court of law? Has he given them the uh, the warning through these different um, visits and letters? Uh, you make up your mind. I think he's he's doing it through these letters and he's getting them ready so that if they if he has to, he will discipline them. And they've had for, they've had fair warning. And, and now he moves on in verse 3 to that I will not spare those who have sinned or any of the others since you're demanding cru- uh, proof that Christ is speaking through me. Okay, so what's been the accusation against Paul up to this point? Or what do you think the Corinthian perception of Paul is? Somebody mentioned it earlier. That he's weak. That he's weak. You're weak, Paul. You don't run around talking about your spiritual experiences like all the other apostles. And Paul says, "Well, I've had those experiences, but they're not for But there's not for me to talk about. I'm not supposed to talk about them." He says. Um, they don't see him as a forceful kind of guy. He probably wouldn't fit the modern American image of the megachurch pastor. He wouldn't. They don't, they don't necessarily think of him in high regard. And it's one of the reasons they've written him off as an apostle is that in some ways he's kind of disappointing to them. Like you say you visited the third heaven, but you're still dealing with a thorn in the flesh. Give me a break. That's the Corinthian thinking. Like you should be able to just get your prayers answered like that. How come you're still struggling with this, Paul? How come the Lord is saying to you, my grace is enough for daily help? How come that's happening? 
thought you were a spiritual guy. So they, they think of him as kind of weak. But now he's saying, I'm getting ready to come. And if you don't like the way that the Paul that you've seen, if you don't repent, you're going to see the Paul that you don't want to see. And so that's where he's coming from in this. And then you'll see the proof that Christ is speaking through me. He talks about a little bit about the nature of Christ here. He is weak in, uh, he is not weak, verse 3, in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Okay, weak in power operate like those words should. There's nothing uh, hidden underneath it in the Greek text that we would need to know. Um, he is powerful among you. For to be sure, uh, he was crucified in weakness, and yet he lives by God's power. And then Paul makes a comparison here in verse 4, and he says, we are weak in him. What? We're weak in him. We live in weakness. He, he talks about that in chapter 12. I will boast about my weaknesses, not about strength, about weaknesses, because then Christ's strength can be seen in me. So we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. What is, what is Paul saying here? We will live with him in our dealing with you. Okay, so here's a couple different translations that might be helpful. Uh, New Living Translation, although he was crucified in weakness, um, he now lives by the power of God. We too are weak, just as Christ was. But when we deal with you, we will be alive with him and will have God's power. Okay, can you hear that? Okay, so we are weak, but when we deal with you, uh, we'll do it by God's power. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I don't know if Paul is going to call down some kind of judgment upon them or if in turning them over to Satan, as he mentions in 1 Corinthians 5, if that uh, takes away the protection of God from them. I don't know exactly how that works. I just know that it's kind of, that's a euphemism for sending them out into the world. I'm not big on excommunication. I think it's a last resort. But I'll tell you that when that happens, according to Scripture, it's more than just you don't get to come to church here anymore. There's some spiritual consequences that go with it. And so it's not to be taken lightly. Whatever Paul means by uh, showing God's power, the thing that I want to really draw out here is that his desire is to deal with them gently. And they shouldn't misunderstand his gentleness for lack of seriousness. And then he, he brings up how... Christ came and he conquered through weakness. How did Jesus win the world? By letting people nail him to a cross. Is that true? That's how he conquered. He conquered through weakness, not by going and raising up an army and blasting the Romans and kicking all the Romans out of town and setting up his throne in Jerusalem. In fact, they tried to take him and make him king by force and he fought against it, didn't he? He slipped through the crowd somehow. He conquers in weakness, and Paul is following that paradigm, and I would suggest to you that it's gentleness that is a primary characteristic of the Christian. Gentleness and love. There's a time to be bold. There's a time even to, to get stern. There's a time for that. And if you're a parent, you know that. I, I don't... Um, I don't know about you, but um, I had parents that sometimes yelled at me. And it damaged my little psyche. And I can hardly tolerate it. 
I can hardly operate in the adult world now. Actually, I'm being sarcastic with that. You know that I know that they loved me, and sometimes they raised their voice at me. And at the time, you know what I thought with my 3, 4, 7, 10, 15-year-old brain? They don't love me. I wish something would happen to me, and then they'll find out. Then they'll be sorry. But you know what? They loved me. And even when they maybe had a rough day and they lost their cool, I knew that that didn't change. But the the primary way that they dealt with me was with gentleness. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here is that Christ is gentle. Remember, Jesus said that, uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, gentle and humble. You'll find rest for your souls. Then the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? One of them is gentleness, right? I don't know where uh, we got the idea that being spiritual meant being harsh. Somehow we get this idea that we're, we've got moral superiority and therefore it gives us license to be mean with it. That's not from God. There's a time to do that, to get people's attention. There's a time to take the hard stand. There's a time to call out like Jesus did, you whitewash graves. There's a time for that, but I think that was all to get their attention. He was gentle at the core, and that's what Paul is, but he says, if you can't listen to that, then I have to raise my voice. If you won't listen to this way, I have to do it this way. If you're insisting on power in the world's sense... That's what I have to come with, but that's really not the way that I prefer, and I don't think it's the Jesus way. It's just the way that it has to be done in order to get your attention. And so he says, by God's power, we'll deal with you if we have to. But then I'd like you to notice how he kind of takes a step back a little bit in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Okay, So here he's um, saying examine yourselves. NLT, examine yourself. See if your faith is genuine. Test yourself. Surely you know Jesus Christ is among you. Uh, Revised English Bible, examine yourselves. Or are you living the life of faith? Put yourself to the test. Surely... You recognize that Christ is among you. If not, you've failed the test. Okay, and, and, and more of the same. Put yourself to the test and judge yourselves to find out whether you're living in faith. Good news, Bible. Surely you know that Christ Jesus is in you unless you've completely failed. The word for examine here is to try to learn the nature or character of something by submitting to a thorough and extensive testing. Nobody's surprised by that. It's a, to endeavor to discover the nature of character, to put to the test uh, so that we can figure out uh, the nature of something, including imperfections, faults, and other qualities. And test here means to try to learn the genuineness. So the opposite of that, um, the genuineness, you'll see here is, uh, unless you fail the test, if you have the uh, King James that says, unless you're reprobates, Reprobates just means something that appears to be something, but is something else. You're not genuine. You're phony. 
Uh, that's to fail the test. Examine yourselves. And he wants, uh, he, Paul wants them to realize that, cr- that Christ is in them. And I think that he's convinced that they're really in the faith, but they've not done that thorough self-examination. They've not realized, most of them, what it means to be in the faith. And I think the application here, here is that we ought to be doing self-examination. One of the things that help us avoid having to have an apostle, Paul, come down hard on us or somebody else in the faith or a spiritual leader is if we examine ourselves. Now, can I pause here for a moment and talk about a spiritual danger? There is a spiritual danger in which you look so thoroughly and intently in yourself that you get your eyes off God. And that's not healthy. This is talking about a kind of thing where we ask honest questions of ourselves. It's not talking about uh, we have to look at ourselves all the time and figure out where we've, you can drive yourself crazy doing that. And then the other thing is you learn to, when you do that, you start to trust in your own goodness rather than in God. But there's a legitimate, balanced view where you take an honest look at yourself. A great time to do that is at the end of a message. Great time to do that is at the end of your Bible reading or in prayer or at any moment in the day when the Holy Spirit should prompt you and say, hey, dude, hey, chick, your behavior has not been great. <laughs> then you take some time for self-examination and go, what is it that is wrong here? And Paul's asking them to ask some tough questions. He doesn't tell us the test. He doesn't mention it. What is the exact questions they ought to be asking themselves in the test? We don't know for sure. We could probably guess, but I don't want to read too much into this so that we're not uh, coming up with, uh, we're not going beyond what's written here. But I would suggest to you that probably part of the test here um, is asking questions like, um, who are we trusting? What gospel, what message have we believed? Who are we trusting? Has our life been transformed? I think those questions are important to to ask as Christians, are we being transformed? Are we being changed? Now, uh, I don't, I don't know how you grew as a kid, but it seemed like I shot up in one year, and I could tell that I was growing because my pants were shrinking. That's how it appeared from my perspective, and my mom was getting shorter. Those two things. But a lot of time when we're growing, we can't feel it and we can't tell it. It happens slowly over time. And so it's it's not an easy thing to find good spiritual markers of growth. But we still ought to be asking the question, am I, be, am I being transformed? I think if we're honest and we're reading our Bible, God's going to show us some growth. And probably it'll come through somebody else saying, man, I like how God is working in your life. You're different than you were six months ago. You've grown, and that's good. But those are some tests. What what message have you believed? Have you believed the gospel? Who is it that you're trusting in? I think salvation isn't just uh, by faith alone. I think salvation is by allegiance. That means if you're trusting in Christ, present tense, and maybe perfect tense is better because it's something that's probably begun in the past but needs to continue through today. The Bible tells us that we ought to keep trusting in him to the end. Okay, so salvation is by faith from first to last. It's from start to finish. It's by faith. So we we trust presently in Christ. Not we trusted him years ago at an altar somewhere. Good. That's the wedding. 
That's not the marriage. Do you understand the difference? The wedding is the ceremony. You met, you met your spouse. You got married. But that's not the marriage. That's the wedding. How many know? The, don't raise your hand too high, but there's a lot more work after the wedding at being married. Right? It's more than just the wedding. Uh-oh. We drew in some rabble from the, the back room there. <laughs> oh, it's, that's no work. Point is, it's um, by faith. And so he's asking them, and I think Paul expects that they're going to, yes, certainly we're in the faith. He expects them to do that. And then the logical conclusion from that is, well, who brought you the message that you believe that made you such wonderful Christians? Well, the apostle Paul did. Well, then you should accept his apostleship and quit playing, being such foolish people. And I know this is really personal. It's hard to apply some of this uh, to our present-day circumstances, but there's one thing that follows from another, that this is the apostolic message, and that's the same message we believe today. Like, we start cutting off, and it's happening. People are trying to separate Paul from Jesus. They're going to say Jesus is this way and Paul is this way, and they're going to try to split Christianity and say, I'm going the Jesus way. And some are saying, I'm going to go the Paul way, that Paul somehow perverted. No. It's one apostolic message. And we need to believe the apostolic message. Don't let anybody rip you off from Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, any of the apostles. Okay? That's our, our heritage. And so for this application, put yourself to the test. We've got to hurry here. We've got two minutes. And uh, I've got the majority of this passage left. So let's just rush through it here. Verse 7, now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will, have, uh, will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what's right. I think here what Paul is saying is uh, we want you to do the right thing, not so that, just so that it validates us. Even if, even if you think that we've fallen short of the test and that we're not legitimate apostles, we may, you may even think we're not even saved, that's secondary to you doing what's right. Can you see how Paul is kind of putting himself down in importance and saying, it doesn't matter so much what you think of me ultimately. What matters is that you live the Christian life. And I think that's humble. And that's how we ought to be. And, and uh, you know, if you win somebody to the Lord and they end up not going to the church that you go to or they end up in a different denomination, don't get bent out of shape about that. You brought them to Jesus. They belong to Jesus, not to you. Same thing with your kids. If you raise them to follow God and they take on a little bit different path. Don't get upset about that. Thank God that they're following him. That's good. Um, and then it goes on to say here, even though we may have failed, which is if, even if you think that we don't, we don't cut mustard here, uh, you do the right thing. We can't do anything against the truth, but we only can do what's for the truth. And so Paul is kind of affirming uh, where his power lies, and it's when it says do anything here, we cannot do anything. The actual word there is power, and it means that we have no power against the truth. We only have power for the truth. So, uh, verse 9, we're glad whenever we are weak, but you're strong. Paul says, I don't care if you think we're weak. We just want you to be strong, and our prayer is that you be fully Restored. Restored had some nuance to it. Let me look at that and we'll wrap this up real quick. 
KJV says, and this we also wish is even your perfection. NLT, we pray that you'll become mature, okay? Uh, and we pray for this, NET, that you may become fully qualified. Bible for everyone, this is what we pray, that you may become complete and have everything in order. And what this includes here is actually two things, and this is why our translations differ so much, is one is the goal of maturity, that's the end or the telos or the the aim is maturity, but on Paul's side of it, these some of these Christians need to get some things fixed. Okay, so can you, you understand? It's not just him saying, just go ahead and aim for perfection. Some of them, in order to, to grow to maturity, need to come to a place of repentance. And so it involves both repentance and the aim at completion. But you can't get there until you go through repentance. And so he's encouraging them. In this, we want you to be fully restored. And then verse 10, this is why I write these things to you while I'm absent. Why do you think Paul's writing these things? Here, if you were to look at verse 10, what do you think, what do you think the purpose of Paul writing these things is? Just verse 10. Getting everybody holy, that's for sure. But I'm thinking of something more specific that's mentioned right here. Restoration. And notice he says that, this, this is a, a reason statement. It gives us the, the reason that when I come, I may not have to be harsh with my authority. That's why he's writing this. It's like he said it and he says it again and he says it again. I'm going to have to be harsh when I come. I don't want to have to be harsh when I come. So I'm warning you ahead of time, please, 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 he says in another chapter, I beg you that when I come, I won't have to be harsh with you. Because what does he want? He wants them of their own free will, not because they've been pressured into it, not through arm twisting, not through some heavy-handed manipulation. He wants them willfully to make the choice, we want to be holy. And here, we're going to hear the voice of God and avoid drama. Paul doesn't want there to be drama. He wants a drama-free church. It's a wish that he never really gets, is it? A drama-free church. There's drama, but he's, that's what he wants. He says that when I come, I won't have to be harsh in my use of authority. He has authority. He recognizes that. He fights for his authority. He claims his authority, not in a way that is arrogant, but in a way that's humble. Listen to it. The authority that the Lord gave me... Authority is, the Greek word is exousia, and it means to, to have the right to govern. Okay? He has that right as an apostle. The authority the Lord gave me, what is the authority for? For beating people up or abusing them or making them take their laundry to the cleaners and things like that? No, for building you up. God gave me authority for building you up. That's what Paul is saying, not for tearing you down. Let me read another passage from Hebrews and we're done. Hebrews 13, 17. I think it's 17. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, the authority God gave me is for building you up. Even if I come and I lay down the law, even if I put discipline out there, this is for making you better, not for hurting you. You might have said to your kids, or my parents said this to me, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. 
And I believe that now. I didn't believe it at the time, but I believe it now. But my dad, I, he set me down. I think he went and probably cried after he whipped me. That's what we called it. You're getting a whipping. And it didn't mean anything extreme or harsh. It just meant you're getting discipline. And he would say to me, Luke, you know, this is why we do this, because we love you. And as a Christian, you shouldn't lie. As a, You're going to be a man of God, and as a man of God, you shouldn't act like this. And so I have to do this. I don't like it, but it's for your good. And I'll tell you what hurt more than the spanking was my dad being disappointed. I knew he loved me. This is Paul. This is the heart of, this is, I think, the heart of God. Why does God give apostles and prophets and uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers? For the, for, for the perfecting of the saints. So the saints can do ministry. And so that we can all, as a church, be built up collectively and become mature, measuring to the full measure of Christ. That's God's intention and his plan. This is Paul's heart. Amen? Thanks for your attention tonight. Let's uh, let's stand together. It's been a joy to go through this letter, even though it's been one of the harder, the harder ones to get through. I think there's so much here and more than we've tapped into. Father, help us to hear the heart of what this passage is about tonight. And we pray that you help us to see a place of uh, self-examination. Would you help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with how we relate to you, to examine ourselves. And if there needs to be discipline, that we discipline ourselves. Otherwise, others may have to do that for us. I'm just asking us, Lord, with a, with the keen eye of your Holy Spirit, that we might, we might discern those areas that we need growth in and that we might find place to be mature. And uh, we ask that you apply this to our lives and and let us, if we have places of authority, each one of us as parents and leaders in the job place or um, places of spiritual leadership, that you help us to exemplify this kind of heart, a heart that's not self-aggrandizing, a heart that's not uh, prideful, one that's not seeking control or power over others, but uses authority for service. We pray for your help in that in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.